Whenever I think about the symbols that we use in church or the symbols that we, we kind of turn to in our, our faith journeys, uh, what we're exploring during this Lenten season is I can't help but remember a story from a friend who I worked with one summer in college. She was uh, driving home from Southern California to see her parents in Las Vegas, and I can't remember exactly why, but she was in a hurry. She was in a hurry driving on that wonderful 15, driving really fast. Eventually, she got pulled over for speeding, and she knew she was wrong. She she took the ticket in stride, and she just kind of kept driving but didn't slow down. And then she remembered that she had one of those metal ichthys fishes on the back of her car. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, the fish that a lot of Christians put on the back of their car in one season to, to tell the world what they believe, to tell the world who they were. And she felt deeply convicted. But instead of slowing down, she pulled over, ripped it off the back of the car and sped home. <laughs> The symbol that we are looking at today is easily the most well-known, well-associated symbol with all of of Christianity, the the cross. It's central to what we believe. Some of us wear it around our necks. We we see it all around our church. Some of us have them hanging in our, our homes. Each of my my kids have one in their room that I got for them when I was in Jerusalem. And and my hope is that as they grow, it will be a constant reminder of what God has done for them and what God has done for the entire world. So in that that first passage that we read from the second chapter of Philippians, and and Diana, I agree with you, such an important, important passage. It reminds us of Jesus' identity and how we're, we're supposed to follow that Jesus being God himself, didn't hold on to all the privileges and and all the advantages that came with being God. Instead, Jesus surrendered them, became a servant, humbled himself, dying on a cross. And as a result, God exalted him, giving him a name above every name. And then Paul writes before he gets into that, that beautiful song that we as followers of Christ, are to have the same mindset. The cross was central for Paul. Elsewhere he wrote that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. And as we'll see in a moment, it's also central for Mark as well. The middle part of Mark, starting toward the tail end of of chapter 8, is really the, the center point of his entire gospel. Everything that happens before Mark chapter 8 is pointing toward these verses. Everything that happens after them is, is a reflection on what happens. It, it flows from these verses. And, and it all starts with Jesus' identity. A conversation between Jesus and the disciples in a diverse town about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in Caesarea Philippi. It was a place associated with all kinds of religion, all kinds of of faith traditions, from from pagan religions to to ancient Canaanite and and Greek mythology. There's a place in the town that's this giant cliff, and and in that cliff there's these caves, 
And, and the locals believed that in these caves, that there was the door to the underworld. So when we read in Scripture, that the gates of hell, that's what Jesus is talking about. This place, this, this place where, where locals believed it opened to all the underworld. And it's in that backdrop that Jesus says, Who do these people say that I am? Who do they think that I am? And they respond, some say, the Baptist, say John the Baptist. Other, others say the prophets of old. And then he says, well, what about you? Who do you think that I am? And Peter calls out, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And after a, a short but incredibly important conversation about Jesus' identity, Mark turns to Jesus' destiny. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And then, following that, we get to the transfiguration, that, that place where, where Mark tells us Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a mountain and gives them a, a small glimpse of what Jesus looked like in all his glory, of, of, of that divine, divine identity. I, I would encourage you at some point this week to spend some time reading through that whole section from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 8. Together, it is an incredible, incredible statement about who Jesus is and, and what we're supposed to do with Jesus' identity. And for now, picking up in this middle part, in chapter 8, verse 31, we read this. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Between our, our youngest daughter's t-ball game yesterday, our, our, our son's baseball games, our, daughter, our oldest daughter's softball games, and the game that our undefeated Westminster adult softball league team played last Sunday, undefeated, 2-0, Two and zero, and in need of a, a woman to come play with us tonight at six fifteen. Jerry, do you like how I worked that in? So if, if you want to play, let me know after church. We're, we're looking for someone to play at six fifteen. But between all of those different games, my family was at the baseball field a lot this last week. So when Major League Baseball said that the lockout was done, I said, "When did baseball ever stop?" Yesterday alone. Yesterday alone, outside of a short break for lunch, we were at the field from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. 
And throughout the eight games that we played out over this last week, I, I relearned something about myself that I've, I've always known, whether it's a team I'm coaching, a team I'm playing on, a team that I'm cheering on from the stands. There are times I can kind of be a little competitive. And there are times where I need to, to kind of check myself and have my emotions kind of toned back. I think it was after a game in our last WPC softball season that I shared on a Sunday morning that I got into it a bit with an umpire and then remembered I was a pastor and remembered, whew, what sort of witness is this being? And while it wasn't quite as bad this last Sunday, there was a moment where a, a teammate had to give me a look like, Dave, stop, you're chirping with the umpire too much. It was Aaron Brown. Thank you, Aaron. The truth is, whether it's a sport or something more significant, there are moments we all kind of need to, to step back, to take a deep breath, and to reorient ourselves toward what is most important. Maybe it's in a conversation with a neighbor. Maybe it's in a disagreement in the office or, or here at church even, or with something that happens within our family. Those moments where we just kind of need to step back and say, okay, what's most important? What am I experiencing and how is my experience affecting what I believe to be what is most important? Really, it's what we try to do every time we gather to celebrate and worship together each and every Sunday morning. We, we pause, we take a breath, we say, okay, this is what's most important. Let's, let's allow the way that we worship to shape the rest of our week. And here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus reminds us that, that when we accept that invitation to follow him, we, we are in a constant process, constantly reorienting ourselves toward what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus in every sphere, work, school, community, coffee shops, baseball fields, wherever we are, the crosses we wear. The crosses that we see in our church, the, the crosses that we have up in our homes, they serve as a symbol to remind us that we are committed to that ongoing reorientation, remembering what is most important. It all starts here in, in, in this story with, with Peter hearing Jesus' plan. The Son of Man would suffer, be rejected by the religious Elite, be killed. Peter doesn't like it. He, he doesn't like what he hears. And, and, and he, he calls Jesus out. Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had just said, you're the one. You're the one who's come to save us. And now, when Jesus talked about how that saving would look, it didn't make sense. Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke with, with a rebuke of his own. And I, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates the rebuke. He says, Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. The words had to sting. And I'm guessing as they sank in, Peter began to think about, okay, what's most important? How am I following this one that I, I claim to be Messiah. And Jesus, in his response, he gives, he gives three, 
three requirements for reorientation. First, he starts, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Must. It wasn't optional. It wasn't, hey, it might be a good idea to deny yourself. Hey, this is the best way to be my disciple. It was, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. And notice, Jesus isn't asking his disciples to deny a part of themselves, like, like many of us do during Lent, or to deny, deny themselves of something specific. He's asking them to deny themselves, their whole selves, completely. He's saying, essentially, that, that following me isn't something you can do with a part of your life. It's not something you can do part-time. It's something you need to do in every area of your life. It's what we pray when we say, thy will be done. Accepting that, living into it, really meaning it. The second requirement for, for reorientation must have, uh, have sounded kind of strange to the disciples. Take up their cross. Remember, this happened before the crucifixion. It'd be a little abstract. Take up your cross. Yes, crucifixions were a, a part of everyday life, kind of. They, they happened. They happened, but it still had to be somewhat abstract. Coming out of left field. Cicero, a, a Roman philosopher who died about 40 years before Jesus' birth, referred to, to crucifixion as a cruel and disgusting penalty reserved for those who were most despised. So by requiring his followers to carry their crosses, Jesus is expecting them and us to do whatever is necessary. Even if it's painful, even if it's humiliating, even if it costs us greatly. Then follow me. It's an invitation to give up the path that, that we have chosen to follow the path that Jesus has chosen for us. One of the commentaries I, I read yeah, put it this way. Jesus does not want a convoy of followers who marvel at his deeds, but fail to follow his example. The procession he envisions is a rare sight. Disciples following after their master, each carrying a cross. It's what we see reflected in, in Jesus' conversations with, with the rich young ruler or the man who wants to go and bury his father. It, it's not enough to know Jesus' words, to be familiar with his teachings, or, or to simply be a good person. Are we actually following Jesus' example? Doing what Jesus said to do. So over the next month or so, as we prepare for Holy Week, throughout the rest of Lent, when we, we see a cross in the church, when we remember what's hanging around our neck, or we see it at, at, our, at our house, I want to invite us to, to take a bit of inventory. What sort of reorientation might you need to do? How, how might you need to step back and, and think about what is most important? Where do you need to surrender? What's getting in the way? What are, you, what are you holding on to? Spend some time reflecting on that question. 
Now, after giving the requirements for reorientation, Jesus gives a bit of rationale about why. He gives a bit of rationale about why a person would want to take these drastic steps. He says, look, I know this is a paradox, but if you want to save your life, or or more literally, if you want to find life, if you want to find life, you have to lose life. Again, I love Eugene Peterson's translation. He writes here at this part of Mark, he says, What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you? Lose the real you. It gets at the heart of God creating us with purpose, with specific gifts, with specific talents, with with gifts that we are called to use for God's kingdom. And over time, we we fall into that that same trap. Do any of you remember the, the Robin Williams movie, Hook? When Robin Williams plays Peter Pan and he shows back up in Neverland and, and he, he forgets who he is, he forgets his purpose, the real him. This is Jesus saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who created you. Don't forget who called you. Who's the one who is saying, come, pick up your cross and follow me. It's an invitation to reorient ourselves toward the God who, who created us. And then Jesus gets to a, a, a not-so-subtle warning. He warns the disciples to not fall into the trap of, of listening to the, the multiple naysayers that were around them, to not fear the high priest or, or the Roman governor. In order to stand in the age to come, they had to, to stand with him in the age that they were living in, stand with him in the, the present suffering. Now note that Jesus doesn't say that following him will, will just make us happier, will just make us more satisfied. Sometimes following Jesus even leads to earthly hum- humiliation, to condemnation. It, it, this is a warning that, that's a foreshadow to Peter's denial of knowing Jesus that happens later in Mark's gospel, where he's in the courtyard just outside where Jesus is being tried right before the crucifixion. And he's paralyzed by fear. He's paralyzed by fear when he's asked if he knew Jesus. I think it's important that we see that Jesus doesn't start the conversation with the warning. He doesn't start by saying, hey, If you don't do this, this is going to happen. But he does still include that warning. He does still include the warning. He doesn't shy away from the cost of not following him. And then he he quickly shifts to this, this somewhat confusing reorientation promise. Here's what happens. Here's what you're guaranteed. Here's here's what he'll give you if you reorient. Any sort of suffering they endure wouldn't go on forever, which is a good reminder for us as well. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, some read this verse here at the beginning of chapter 9 and think it points to what's coming at the end times, what's coming at the end. Others think that Jesus is pointing specifically to the transfiguration that happened right after this, this, this part of Mark. 
That, remember a week later where, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they see a glimpse of Jesus' identity with Elijah and Moses. And some, some think that, that Jesus is pointing to a series of events here. The transfiguration, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, even the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, that all of those, all of those happenings are examples of the kingdom of God coming with power into everyday life. But I have to be honest, when, when I read this, it's a little confusing and, and it raises more questions for me than it does give answers. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? What, what does it mean for us to see the kingdom of God? I'd like to think, at least in part, that each and every day we have opportunities to see the kingdom of God. Glimpses of the kingdom of God take place around us. We just have to reorient ourselves to see them. And the cross, the crosses around us are a constant reminder to do just that. So as we continue our Lenten journey, as we we prepare for Easter... May those crosses remind us to pause, to take a breath, to to commit to the daily discipline of denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, we we thank you for the the signs and the symbols in our faith that, that guide our journey. We thank you for the cross. Give us the strength to to surrender, to follow you daily. We pray these things in your name. Amen.